Welcome to OKHR Leads. I'm Tara Crowley, along with Rob Trotter, and my current role is OKHR Certification Chair, and Rob Trotter is Sooner HR's President and also is on OKHR Board. Um, we're connecting with our leaders, HR leaders in our community, and hearing uh, their story, what makes them tick. Rob, what's happening with you today? Hey, Tara, I'm, I'm both very excited and uh, a little concerned about some things going on. First off, oh. I'm very excited because Sunday, we're gonna have an OKHR board meeting, which means mm. that we are finally gonna be in the same room with virtually everybody that we've interviewed up to this point. And I was thinking mm. about, it, I haven't seen any of these people since this has happened. So that's, that's very exciting. That's, that is great. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I, you're gonna have a blast. <laughs> right. And then yeah. uh, the thing that has me concerned is, you know, my son is living in Atlanta. He's in the film industry. Now, he's actually oh. trying to get into that. He's trying to get on the union of the film industry. And, yeah. and right as he's got everything ready to go, so he can start getting his film jobs, they decide that they're going to go on strike. So it would right. really be nice if we could get somebody on this podcast that might know just a little bit about this arena so that, uh, you know, he might be able to help me make, make me feel better or at least give my son some pointers out there. So That's right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, well if you guys need we... to go find that guy, let me know. <laughs> 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 so, see, and he's already jumped on. It's yes. Philip Wilson, and I'm super excited <laughs> because Bill, I, let me give his little bit of intro, but uh, Bill is the president and general counsel, counsel of Labor Relations Institute. He has authored quite a few books, uh, one, Left of Boom, Approachability Playbook, and Managing the Union Shop. And Bill has also shared his expertise through media outlets such as Fox Business News, Bloomberg News, HR Magazine, and New York Times. And Bill is a thought leader regarding labor and employee relations, and we are so lucky that he resides in Oklahoma. Um, so we're going to have a wild ride visiting with the, with Phil Wilson. So welcome, Phil. We are so pleased that you were available to meet with us. Yes, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm. Uh, I told you guys, I like I I I was really pleased to like find the the podcast, and I've had a chance to listen to some of the back catalog. That you, this is a really great thing that you're doing for Oklahoma HR. Well, thank you. We are so excited. And I, as I was looking you up yesterday, I um, looked at your website and watched your little video. And the best thing, which just made my heart so happy, is Crystal Brew, who was, I don't know, episode six, five, episode, six, uh, four. She turns around and I'm like, that's Crystal. <laughs> so I'm so excited. All the people we know. So I... I'm so excited to hear your story, and um, and we want to hear about your background and also kind of how how you're here in Oklahoma and what you do. But tell us your background and how it led to your career, if you will be willing to do that for us. Sure. So I uh, I grew up mostly in Oklahoma. Uh, so so the sort of how am I here is because I was born here and uh, raised mostly here. Um, my dad actually started our business 41 years ago, uh, or almost 42 years. So, so we've we've been around a long time. Um, but my journey, sort of back to to where you know to the to the family business, uh, was a little windy. So I I graduated high school in Sepulpa. I'm not telling you what year, but anyway, I, I uh, went to went to school here. I went 
to, I was a debater in high school and I wanted to debate in college. So I, I joined a, a debate team up at Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois, which was a lot different weather than we have here in Oklahoma. Um, I'm a slow learner, so I ended up going to law school in Ann Arbor, Michigan, to where you know oh. where the weather's even worse than it is in Rock Island, Illinois, at least in the wintertime. Just hope you had a hat. Yeah. No, my first <laughs> semester, my my I, I walk in and uh, the, there's a communications professor where the debate union was, and I walk in and I've got like this little parka on, and he goes, "Phil, is that your coat?" I'm like, "Yeah." It's like it's my, he's like, "No, no, no." you know be cool be cold go get like the ugliest biggest coat you can find because you were going to die this winter and he was right i did have to go get like a much bigger coat um so anyway i went to law school in ann arbor at university of michigan i then worked my way back i i practiced labor law in chicago um i opened up an office for my law firm in iowa I then uh, left the firm and actually was on my way back to Oklahoma to do what I'm doing now. Uh, but I had a client in St. Louis, a riverboat casino of all things that uh, the, the general manager there convinced me to do something that I told him at the time. I was like, you, you like this is probably your stupidest idea ever, but he asked me to be his HR director for a year. Um, which I, I finally accepted after I couldn't talk him out of it. And uh, I'm glad I didn't because that's where I met my now wife, Janet. But I was a director of HR for a year, uh, which is a quick way to figure out like just like what, how much bad advice you gave as a lawyer uh, when you start actually having to like do everything that you were saying. Um, but anyway, I did that for a year and then moved back home and so that was in 97, late 97, and, and uh, been here at Labor Relations Institute uh, since then. So that's my, my windy path through the, uh, uh, the HR world. So you just talked, uh, talked on it for just one second, and it, what did you find is the difference when you were legally advising people and then the difference with practicing HR? Well, because they're kind of night and day. It, it was not fun. Yeah. <laughs> You guys have probably been on the receiving end of legal advice. Like, I, I probably don't have yeah. to tell you, but yeah, it's a common experience for HR people, right? You have a, a lawyer right. and some lawyers are better at this than others. And I, I really did try to pride myself on trying to give practical advice. But like I said, even, even though I prided myself on that, once you're kind of in the recipient's seat, there is a lot of, you know, kind of harebrained ideas that you come up with that like are legal that are just... It's like, no, that's not practical. That won't work. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of people who can tell you, like, this is what the law says. This is what the law, you know, says you're supposed to do. But then there's just the, okay, how can we run a business? Um, by the way, you know, that legal advice might be horrible employee relations advice, right? Like, you, like, you know what, if I do this, it is going to create a civil war, you know, in my company, mm -hmm. like, I, like, you, you have to start figuring out, okay, what's the practical way for me to do something that's not illegal, but is also workable and is not gonna like upset everybody. Uh, and it's gonna be something that we can like administer in a reasonably consistent way, um, all, all of those things. So it's really challenging, you know, and I, I make fun of lawyers. I still am one and, you know, keep my license up just in case this whole labor relations thing doesn't work out. But the uh, but I, but 
I really do think about you have to um, you have to think about what's the practical way to stay inside the lines, but but also allows you to run a business, also allows you to um, to create a great workplace. I mean, it, like what gets me out of bed in the morning is creating extraordinary workplaces, and you know the 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 law is certainly a component of that. Like you don't want to break the rules, um, but you really have to think about how is this going to impact my people um, and their day-to-day -day lives uh, and all of uh, you know getting all that together and getting it right is is almost magic like it's it's very hard to do that's why you know hr people have such terrifically hard jobs that are not appreciated um, but but and that's why because you're in the intersection of like all of all of this stuff and nobody really takes time to kind of understand oh well we have to do this because the rules changed um, we have to do it now, you know, we, you know, we have to do it in a way that can be communicated easily that people will understand just all of those components. And that's, that's right where HR sits. Yeah. You reminded me whenever we spoke with, uh, Joy Killingsworth and she talked about, she had just graduated from college or something. And then she gets in this HR role and she goes, um, the leadership really didn't want to hear all of the stuff that I had to say. <laughs> you can't do this or this is new. It's like, oh, yeah, it's finding that way to tiptoe in and say, you know, here is this process or something and um, or a change, a, a law that's changed and, and finding that way to incorporate it where it does meet the needs of the business as well as employees. It's just it's a hard balance. A huge part of being good at HR is like learning to pick battles. And learning to like figure out, you know, I need to make this, first of all, I need to speak in the language of the business, not in the language of this is what the rules are, or like, hey, wouldn't this be a great idea? It, it needs to be in the language of like, we can, we can get from, from like point A to point B in our quarterly goals, in our, you know, operational goals. There's this big like transformation project that you want to do. This will help us get there. You got to get really good at figuring out how the thing that you know is the right thing to do sort of fits into what the business folks, you have to, uh, a, a way I like to refer to this, like you have to step into the conversation that's already going on in their head, right? So don't come in with, hey, I saw this great idea in Sure Magazine or whatever. It's like, hey, I already know what you're thinking about and what's keeping you up at night. I had this idea that, uh, you know, of, of something that would help like make this project that you're trying to do easier. And then, and then the real pro tip is make it their idea, right? Like you, you're not naming it as, hey, I had this idea. It's like they say something even like marginally close to what you want to talk about. And you're like, that is the most amazing idea that I have ever heard. I can't believe you just came up with that. And then you just sort of tell them your idea. And they're like, oh yeah, that is a great idea. I'm glad I came up with it. Yeah, part psychologist, right? Oh yeah. Lots of psychology. So there are companies who are not necessarily, I mean, there are people who listen to this who are not necessarily familiar with a unionized environment. And that's mm. somewhat of what your business does, correct? Labor Relations Institute yep. that you are helping businesses to potentially, is this correct? Maybe potentially stay union free. I mean, if oh, it's you okay have to, to say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, so, so Tara, what are I some like, things that? Like, 
oh my god is it like I'm, uh, I, I now I kind of feel bad about what I do I'm just I'm no kidding. I yeah, just I, I, because I, I don't know is it a good thing is it a bad thing I mean bottom line I feel like as as businesses in HR, we want to promote what's the best for mm -hmm. our employees and also what's best for the for companies. And so yeah. there are times where, um, I don't know, I, I work in Oklahoma, I don't see unions that much. So it's right. always a little bit like, oh, I don't get it. But then I, I, have, I have, you know, somebody, my phone service or my cable service, and it's somebody comes and they say, I can do this, but I can't do that. You have to call this other person where they yeah. can't fix it all. So... It, I, I it, you know, tell me how all of that works and what does that mean for a business if there was a union to potentially come into their business? Sure. And then we need to answer Rob's question for his son as well, right? Yes. What does it mean Absolutely. to be a union member? So um, yeah, our business, I didn't really get to like, what do we do? So that, that will, we'll, let's go back to that real quick. So we are, um, we're a full service labor relations and employee relations consulting business. We work, uh, with management. Uh, and like I said earlier, our, our well, I, I said what gets me out of bed in the morning, but the, our core purpose as an organization is helping our clients create extraordinary workplaces. Like that's, that's what we do. We work with companies all across the sort of life cycle as it relates to unions. We typically intersect with the business dealing with some sort of union issue. Not always, but a lot of times we, we do. Um, and that can be anything from a group of employees that are trying to make the decision about whether to bring a union into the company. Um, it can be uh, a situation where a group of employees are already unionized and they're either negotiating an agreement or maybe considering going on strike. Rob, like the example of your, you know, your son was dealing with. Although I don't know if you heard the news, but that that contract settled actually. Oh, really? um, yeah. So. There's no strike, uh, but but it, but as most of these things do, it was settled at like midnight, right before they were supposed to walk out. So that's that's kind of how the game is played. Um, and then we we also work with companies what I what I call left of boom. So my book about left of boom is basically people that are you know being proactive that are trying to prevent problems before they ever get to the situation where you might think you want to be represented. So we work with people all across that that life cycle. Um, we do, Tara, we will tell, you know, we go in and uh, work with companies that where employees are considering bringing in a union. And a big part of that is to both educate employees and the company, by the way, about like, what does that mean, right? What does it mean if you are in a union? How does that change the relationship between the employees and management? How does that impact the, the, the job? How could that impact the company? Um, but we work uh, we work hard to make sure that people, when they make that decision, which is which is every, every you know virtually every private sector employer is covered by the National Labor Relations Act. Virtually every private sector employee has a protected right to organize a union at their workplace. So it's never about like don't exercise the right. It's always about is this the right decision for you and your coworkers in sort of the situation that you're in. And unfortunately, there is all kinds of myths and all kinds of misunderstandings and, and all kinds of, um, you know, look at the, like during the election process, um, there's a lot of, you know, campaign promises that get made. I don't know if you've noticed that in just our regular politics, right? And it's hard to know who to believe, you know, when they're all making campaign pitches, that's very much like a union campaign is. So 
you'll have people that are pro-union, especially the, the union organizers that are out there pitching and selling. And this is the greatest thing that's ever going to happen to you. Much of what they say is either not true or like a stretch of the truth. Um, and then the flip side is, you know, there are, there are people that will say like unions are evil and unions are bad and they're definitely, and that's not true either, right? Like unions have a purpose. There's organizations that are unionized that take great care of their employees. It's not for every type of company. It's not for every type of employee. Um, and so what's really most important for employees is when they're in that situation to make the right decision, right? To really understand what can they do? What can they not do? How much is it going to cost you? Sort of what kind of say are you actually going to have in the outcome if they were to come in? All of those sorts of things. It's really important for people to know that when they make the decision. So we, we help companies and employees that are in that situation. Then unionized companies, we also get, go in and we help companies. Um, you know, sometimes we even sit at the bargaining table for companies where we will negotiate labor agreements uh, on their behalf. Um, but it's still the same thing at the end of the day. It's like, how do we get through? And a lot of times there are really strong opinions on both sides about what's the right outcome, both in, a, in an election and also in contract bargaining. Um, what can we do to get through this process in a way that we feel like we've made the, the best decision for the, the, this group of employees and for the future of the business? Because ultimately, if the business doesn't stay strong and isn't successful, it's not going to be a good place to work uh, and it's not going to survive. And so um, that, that's kind of how we work on, on that side. Um, but that's, that's what we do you know, every day as an organization. We do leadership training. So you know, Terry, you mentioned the approachability um, playbook and some of the leader approachability stuff that we do. And I've, I've spoken in a lot of Oklahoma chapters about leader approachability. So we, we definitely work hard on, you know, if you grow better leaders, you don't have to worry about union campaigns and a lot of the negative stuff that can happen. Um, so, so we really kind of start there. Like, what can we do to build the best leaders possible? Um, because that solves a whole lot of other downstream issues. Right. So I have two questions out of this. So yeah. first of all, if a, if a group has, a union is potentially coming in, what does that, like, if you can say it in a general, what does that change for a business? Like what happens? Them. Well, most fundamentally, it just changes the relationship between the group of employees and their, the employer. So if you're non-union or non-represented, then you can deal directly with your employer as an individual. Um, you can deal directly with your employer on any issues related to wages, hours, conditions of employment, things like that. Um, if you are represented by a union, it is illegal for the company to deal directly with anybody that's in that group of employees around wages, hours, conditions of employment. So instead, you negotiate with a collective bargaining representative, with the union representative. By the way, one of the common myths is like, we are the union, like the group of employees that are organizing, we're the ones that run the union. The, uh, that is almost never the case. What happens is if a, if a union goes in and files a petition, the, the, the entity, the legal entity that, that is elected is a, a local union, that is part of an international union, and that's who owns the bargaining relationship with the employer. So the employer no longer can deal directly with employees. The employer is legally required to deal with this representative. Now, the, that, that union will usually have a group of local employees involved in the bargaining, but 
but they don't sign the contract. They don't legally have a say uh, ultimately in whether a contract gets entered or not. It's ultimately the employer and the union that bargain together. So I'm going to ask the question from just not having experience and also from taking my SHRM SCP test and potentially taking class whenever I was in college. Yeah. <laughs> that if someone has a union, then the employee is making a payment. Is that in every case to the union? Uh, great their... question. Not always. Okay. So okay. In, in Oklahoma, for example, we're what's called a right to work state. So you cannot be compelled as a condition of employment to pay money to a union. Um, lots and lots, there's, there's uh, about half the states are not like Oklahoma, so they're non-right-to-work states. In those states, the vast majority of labor agreements require you to pay some money or fee. Most of the time, it's called union dues, although you can't be compelled to pay dues. So in some cases, you might opt out of paying dues, but you still end up having to pay a fee that is in lieu of dues, but it still gets paid to the union. It's essentially the same thing as dues, but you can, you, you know, they can call it this, what they call an agency fee. But um, so in Oklahoma, you don't have to pay dues as a condition of your employment. Although if you are not paying dues, your brothers and sisters are probably going to pressure you to pay dues um, because the union wants to have that, that income. And they feel like it's sort of disloyal to not pay for the, you know, the services that they're providing. So, um, but, but you don't have to. Okay. Does that, okay. Did that answer it? Yeah. Okay. It does. It does. I had another question now. I forgot it because I'm already jumping onto another thing. So, well, well then go I've ahead, got Rob. one. Are uh, <laughs> unions, or maybe the, uh, maybe the impression of unions different today in the modern age versus what they were in the seventies and eighties? Yeah, great question. I mean, it's like, I, I think this has shifted just in the last like year or two, like through COVID. Um, like union popularity was sort of increasing even before COVID. But, you know, when you look at, first of all, our labor market, like I have bad news for anyone listening to this that thinks that like we're going to go back to normal. Um, the labor market has like completely changed. It's not going back. There are probably millions of people who have left the workforce that are not going to be rejoining the workforce. Um, people are not loyal to a job like they used to be. Um, there are lots of people have decided to completely change career, completely change really the way that they support themselves. Um, this has led to just like a massive shift in the labor market. And then Rob, to your point, it's not just the shift in the labor market, but it's also a shift in leverage you know, that employees have. And then you layer on top of that, um, whatever your position on requiring vaccines, for example, I mean, there are lots and lots of people right now that are being put into a position where they are being compelled you know, as a condition of employment to do something that they vehemently disagree with. Um, and so that also is massively changing the labor market. And, and it's a, so it's a, it's a unique time. Employees have a lot more leverage than they've ever had. Um, and like I, I'm like literally since as long as I've been doing this, which is longer than I want to, want to admit, um, <laughs> I've never seen a, a leverage position like this. It's why you see a lot of strikes happening now. Strikes 
we, we were getting to a point where there was, I mean, like you could count on two hands, the number of major strikes in a year in the seventies, Rob, it was completely different. Like, you, you know, there were dozens of strikes a month. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's changed. You're seeing a lot more strike activity in some cases, honestly, I think it's some of these strikes. I don't think the unions even necessarily expect that they're going to gain a lot by going on strike. It's just like they've had it and they want to express their anger with just the way things are. And so they are going to go out on strike and I hope to gain something from it. Um, but, but anyway, Rob, to your point specifically, I think because of the environment that we're in, unions are, they're more popular than, they, than they've been. Gallup does a, a, a polling question on this. They are more popular than they have been at any time since the late 70s um, and, and are, are approaching as popular as they have ever been since they started asking that question. Um, and so I think they're just, there's part of like the zeitgeist that they're kind of, they're just, they're, they're seen as cool again. Like most of the time they, they've, They've like in my most of the time in my career, if you if you ever thought about a union, which you never did, but if you did ever think about it, you thought that they were crooks, you thought that they were lazy, you thought like you didn't really have a the basic opinion was not a positive opinion about unions. That's completely changed, um, and not necessarily based on a lot of information, but just people's gut feeling about unions is different now, especially younger workers um, who are kind of just coming in into the labor force. Yeah, it probably goes back to history and what people know and being in, mm-hmm. involved in it before. And if somebody, if you're, if what I think I heard you say is that persons who are younger coming into the labor force aren't necessarily familiar with some of the struggles or things that had occurred before. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, this kind of goes to some of the next questions about um, your two books that I have. And one of them has to do with um, your book, Left of Boom. You talk about an overview discusses the army stating that it was a learned response to be proactive in preventing a crisis, and that's what that's why it's called left a boom. Yeah. Where did you hear that story, and why do you think that's important? And then maybe give the story around the left a boom um, yeah. reasoning. Well, it doesn't age quite as well, you know, where we sit right now after just leaving Afghanistan, but the, but it comes out, it, it comes out of the conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the first time I read about it was in the Washington Post, they ran a big article and, and the basic notion was that early on in the conflict over there, um, really the only, the, the primary way that U.S. troops were getting, you know, killed or hurt was through IED, improvised explosive device attacks. Um, and if you showed a chart of those attacks, you know, when we first went in, there was very few of them. It didn't really hurt us too bad, didn't really kill very many people. But there was this whole cat and mouse game for several years. And if you watched a chart, you could just see these IED attacks, the number of them, the severity of them, then the number of troops hurt or killed just went up and up and up. And uh, everything that the military was doing to try to you know stop this was not working. And it, it became, like I said, just a cat and mouse game. Anything that we did to try to stop the devices from going off, or maybe to armor up vehicles so that they wouldn't do as much damage, uh, the insurgents were, were like one step ahead. And so the, they go all the way up. And eventually the military is just like, we are not doing this right. We have got to figure out a way to somehow prevent these attacks. 
So what they ended up doing was um, their primary strategy was just like chase down bad guys. And there is an unlimited supply of bad guys, such an unlimited supply that like we ultimately weren't able to you know, defeat them in Afghanistan, right? So it's like, there's an unlimited supply of bad guys. What there's not an unlimited supply of is bomb makers. Uh, it turns out that making a bomb is really hard. Um, if you're not good at it, you don't survive. So like there's only the people that are good at it once they figure out how to make a bomb that, that works and doesn't kill them, they keep making the bomb that way because they're like, okay, I figured it out. And because of that, bombs have signatures. So what they ended up doing is going, you know, we need to look at these more like a crime scene investigation than what we've been doing, which is just like a, a hunt and try to catch type of operation. And they really invested a lot of resources in that. And then if you look at the chart, what happens is, that, so they end up figuring out what the signatures of these different bombs are. They start being able to figure out where did this material come from, where bombs that are made like this tend to circle an area like this. So now we have a geographic area to really kind of dig into and look at. Then we go winning hearts and minds in those areas. And then we all of a sudden people start telling us where the bomb maker lives. Um, they did that over and over again. And then if you look at the chart, what happens is IED attacks just drop. Like, yeah. Wow. And, and so that whole strategy they called left of boom. So if you think of an IED attack as a boom event or a bang, they would call it. There's all the stuff that leads up to boom, that's left of the boom. And then once boom happens, then there's right of the boom. So their strategy at the beginning was all right of the boom. Um, they decided to switch to this left of boom and that had a huge you know, positive impact on their results. And um, so I think that there are boom events in the lives of companies as well, right? So like a union campaign is a boom event in the life of your company. There are things that lead to that event happening. And then there's things that happen afterwards if it, if it goes through. So we look at part of our job is trying to keep our clients focused to the left side of boom. And the left side of boom, as far as employee relations is concerned, is doing a good job of training leaders, listening to employees about their complaints and concerns, resolving those complaints and concerns when they're, you know, molehills, not mountains, um, communicating effectively, making sure that you pay and that your benefits are, are good, making sure that you're, you know, that you're a good place to work just in general. Um, all of those things are left of boom tactics that kind of prevent you from getting to the boom event. I hope that you are this person, but I heard something one time that said military um, in like, I guess the forties talked about having a relationship with, with um, persons that were in their platoon and, and having this, but the books kept getting more streamlined to just say, you know, stripped it down from the, from the relationship part. Mm -hmm. And I could be making all of this up and, and I'm wishing that it's you that originally told the story, but does this partially lead into the approachability part of all those things that you're talking about, that we mm -hmm. have to have this relationship with our employees? And you mentioned something at the very beginning of, of your introduction, talking about what you do, and that we need to have a good relationship with those frontline managers and employees. Mm -hmm. What's something that you would tell a business or for on this podcast yeah. <laughs> where that you would something that you would potentially tell them saying how they can um, connect with their with their frontline employees with their front and their frontline managers what's something that 
we that you can pass along. Yeah. Well, going back to I, first of all, I don't think it was me that said the that had that that relationship military connection, but I would love to read that. Like that sounds that sounds really I interesting. And I to, but I, I totally agree it. with the sentiment, right? Which is those relationships are what is absolutely critical. Um, one of the one of the things that we consider kind of our secret sauce around here that makes us unique and makes us effective is that we are all about building relationships. Like at the end of the day, what we go in and we do is we build and grow relationships in organizations that we come in contact with. A huge part of that is by teaching leader approachability. And then I, I wanna, I also wanna circle back to sort of at the very beginning, we talked about like how does HR persuade ops or persuade like the general manager that they should invest in something like this because they're you know they're not all looking around going like wow i just wish i had like a good leadership training program that i could buy today um what they what they want is they want lower turnover they want to be able to retain and attract people they want people to go a little bit above and beyond at work they want to reduce conflict right like th those are business results which by the way we've studied all this, and there is one thing that drives all of those results, 71% lower turnover intention, 88% increase in engagement, uh, also 80 plus percent increase in organizational citizenship behavior, which is discretionary effort. Um, all of those things provable, if and, 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 and all correlated with one behavior, which is, is my leader approachable? So if I feel safe and comfortable, coming to my immediate boss, we love first level leaders. Like that is who we think are the most important. If you can get that relationship strong, people will put up with a whole lot of crap that happens above that level of leadership if that relationship with my boss is strong, okay? So if you just invest in that relationship, um, for you're gonna be far left of boom. If I feel safe and comfortable coming to you, I am going to feel good coming to you if I've, if I've got a concern. If I see somebody's doing something that's not safe or somebody's treating somebody that's, that's not being treated properly, I'm gonna make suggestions to you about, hey, I've got a good idea about how we do this. Um, and those suggestions, by the way, can make everybody's job easier and probably make your company a lot of money. Um, uh, there's just all kinds of good things that happen as long as you get that first level leader relationship strong and the best way to get that relationship strong is by being approachable. I heard a, a, a comment that talked about emotional security and mm -hmm. it made the most sense to me of, of stating that when someone is not comfortable like in this approachability mm -hmm. that they talk in generalities and that you have to the person who's the leader ha has to kind of poke holes because the person isn't comfortable yeah. coming out and stating this is bad, or I'm uncomfortable. Yep. It's, you know, we kind of have an issue, or, you know, it's it's just really kind of generic, and then so the person who's the leader is having to figure that out, and so this makes so much sense. That we teach, we, we teach, two, there, there's, I can give you the whole approachable leadership model in like a minute, so we teach two core ideas. The first one is power distance. It's exactly what you were just talking about. If I am dealing with someone that I'm in a power relationship with, and I'm experiencing what's called power distance, which means that I am more concerned about sort of your position or your authority, your power, that can trigger fear 
like subconsciously triggers fear. And I am then going to behave exactly like you said, Tara. I am, I'm gonna hem haw around. I'm gonna not, I'm not gonna tell you exactly what I think. I'm gonna be concerned. Are you gonna think that I'm, you know, bad or I'm tattling on somebody or I'm a, just a complainer because I, I say this? I am not gonna be upfront with you. And so then my job as the leader is then I have to make it safe. I think you're talking about psychological safety, but you're, you're, I have to make it safe and comfortable for you to just be true to me. And the way that you do that, there's three buckets you fill. Are you open and available? That's the first one. We call that right space. Are you uh, understanding? We call that right feeling. Do you actually listen to try to understand this person? Or are you constantly just thinking about what to say next and how can I you know, just solve this problem and get you out of here? And then the third component is uh, support or what we call right action. Um, but that, that is approachable leadership in a nutshell. Shrink power distance and you do it by being open, understanding and supportive. It's all right. It's all, it's all there in the book. <laughs> all in the book. And it's short and fast. I mean, you can get through this quickly and learn some yeah. tools and traits. Of, of Back to what we just talked about. It's written for first level leaders. Like the, the whole point of it is it needs to be written for the people that are the key point of contact with your team. Because it's not the GM. And honestly, it's not HR. I mean, HR certainly can play a role and HR absolutely needs to be approachable. I did a, I think the last SHRM event that I did before COVID, I, I did a talk about the approachable HR office, right? So it's, you know, approachability does have a role to play in HR, but at the end of the day, it's still that first level leader relationship that's the key. These are all exciting pieces and I, wish that uh, we all need to read this, no matter mm -hmm. what. Go ahead, Rob. Thanks. So what are some uh, mistakes that leaders make that they think they're being approachable? How do they, how do they misconstrue some of this? Oh, good question, Rob. So you're, I think, I think some of the big misses are like, uh, and, it, and it, it can go both ways. Like, like, so one is you think if you're just being friendly, if you are, you know, you, you talk to people about, you know, hunting or you talk to people about sports or, you know, that, that you are, um, you know, the, that you're being approachable, right? And I'm not saying that any of that stuff is bad, you know, but to really grow a relationship with somebody, uh, one of the things we talk about is like the approachability window, but it's basically there, there is stuff in kind of the open area that you would talk to like a total stranger about having conversations with your team about stuff that you would say to somebody at the Walmart checkout line is really not building a deep relationship, right? What, what you have to do as a leader is not just do the surface stuff. Now, I'm not saying don't also say good morning and, and uh, have some of those sort of like more scripted conversations. Those are fine. But you really also have to care about that relationship. How is this person doing? Um, what is important to them in their, in their lives? Do they feel like they're making progress in their life? Um, what's frustrating them? All, like all, those are the things you have to talk about. So if, you know, you don't get a pass by avoiding sort of the deeper conversations and look, sometimes you're going to have to talk about things that are uncomfortable to talk about. You're going to have to talk to somebody about, I don't feel like you're 
I don't feel like you're you're giving it your all. I don't feel like you're um, delivering the way that I know you can, right? Like you, you know, but you cannot skirt that kind of feedback either. You have to be the kind of leader that um, encourages people, that really listens to understand, uh, that supports their team, um, but also doesn't like, isn't just fixated on trying to be everybody's best friend. Like you can be, you, you, you know, we do, a, we do an exercise where part of it, we have you actually practice being over the top nice. So like sticky, gooey, all I care about is being your best friend. That is as unapproachable as being a jerk. So, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a in-between place that you've got to be as a leader. How do you think that it has changed? So I keep thinking approachability. Yes, I'm talking about water cooler things. Yes, that creates a little bit of conversation, but it's not creating that deep conversation, which you, you are trying to create for persons is what mm -hmm. I'm hearing you, you talk about. But also, do you think that being persons locked down in, in COVID, that changed how approachability has been oh, yeah. perceived? For sure. I mean, obviously, if you, you can't even be, I mean, it, like it depends. I mean, you know, factories have not been closed, you right. know, um, uh, hot, you know, there's a, a lot of like restaurants and there's a lot of businesses that did not shut down um, and, and where everybody didn't go away. But if you're in the kind, if you're in a business or a job uh, where, where everyone went home, then that's a whole different skill set, right? Being good at Zoom was not, is not something that we all kind of knew prior to, you know, two years ago. Um, so there are different skills and different things you have to do if you're in that sort of virtual world. But, at, you know, back in the rest of the world where you're in a manufacturing operation, for example, the other problem that we have is that there are, just like we talked about, right, the labor market has completely shifted. It is so lean right now and so tough just to get bodies in the door that in some ways we build in unapproachability just by the fact that there are not enough hours or minutes in a day for me to get out and actually have these important conversations with my team. Um, so both sides of it are challenging. I mean, at the end of the day, this isn't optional, right? It's, you, you know, if, if you want to retain talent, if you want to uh, reduce turnover, you have got to invest in those relationships. Those people that don't feel that way are, are going to walk and they have lots of options to walk now. Um, the flip side is if you love your leader, you can be offered extra money, you can be offered different benefits, you can be offered a lot of stuff, you're gonna stay for that leader. You don't want to let that person down because that person believes in you. Um, that and, and that is something that you can't out, you know, like no competitor for talent is going to outcompete you on that. So um, anyway, that, that's kind of my, my take on that. But. You just made me think about someone if they have a mentor or, or mm -hmm. you know, someone that just pushed them out of their comfort zone. And then, they're, you know, if they can go back and say, you believed in me that I stepped out of my comfort zone, you allowed me to do this new thing. That's where. That's my next book actually is about the hero assumption. Like that's, it was a close second. It was a close second when I did approachability, but I think that whole thing, Tara, is so critical. Um, it's kind of 
simplistic, but simple is, you know, simple is not easy. Simple is just simple. Um, yeah. But believe, if I believe in you, um, that I'm going to behave differently. You're going to feel differently around me. And, and, and a lot of times, by the way, that conversation might be like uncomfortable, right? I, I believe in you, even when you don't believe in yourself. And even though you are behaving in a way that I probably should be mad about, but I'm not mad. I'm just more disappointed because I know, I know what you're capable of. I don't even think you know what you're capable of, but I know what you're capable of. And those are the relationships in our lives. Those are the people that we will never forget. Those are relationships that probably everyone that listens to this podcast has that person in their life at some point that is the reason that they are where they are, right? Um, so that that is a, such an important behavior, Tara. You're, you're right on. I, you, gosh, you're making me... and. Think about this from a standpoint of I had someone in my personal life who mm -hmm. made a comment to my mother and said, Tara doesn't realize the power she has. Mm -hmm. And what a compliment that you just kind of go, oh, I'm going to stand a little taller. I'm going to, okay, mm -hmm. it's okay to step outside of my comfort level and go do that big thing. So thanks for reminding I, me of that. I think that is like epidemic in HR where it's so easy to talk yourself into HR as being like, I can't really move this needle. I don't have any power to make this happen. First level leaders struggle with this all the time too. It's like this, when we, like when we train people, we, this, I have this talk all the time. It's like, you have no idea how powerful you are. You, you have no idea the influence that you actually wield. You tell yourself that you don't have any power to influence things you are probably like to a first level leader, to an HR person, you have more power than, than maybe anybody else in the organization to actually get something done that's important to your teammates. It's important to, you know, like how many different leaders can you influence in the HR chair, first level leaders that you can influence by coaching and mentoring and pushing them and, and, and making the hero assumption about them. Um, like you, you have all kinds of influence. Now you may not be able to get your most recent, you know, project that you really want funded or the most recent, uh, you know, policy change that you think would be good. Like you, the, there's some of those things that you may feel like I, you know, I can't influence, but in just terms of day-to-day, -day, like making things great in an organization, you have tons of influence that we talk ourselves out of all the time. And it's a tragedy. We're going to hit a play for Phil every time we're a little bit discouraged. <laughs> have him pop in and say, you have influence, you are important, all those things. So if, you, if anybody is listening, they need that right now. Back it up a minute and hear Phil tell, his, tell that to you. He's like talking the, to you. Right. Like the Jack <laughs> Handy or the Stuart Smalley. Yeah, of, there you go. HR, right? I'm good enough, <laughs> hard enough. That's awesome. Um, what's a common request of you and your organization that takes you by surprise when it's requested? Hmm. Okay, that's a stumper. What's a common request <laughs> that takes me by surprise? Hmm. You know, I can't really think of, I mean, first of all, you have to understand that almost every call we have, 
this is a little bit of an exaggeration, but I mean, we like we are in the front seat of a lot of leadership train wrecks, right? So we we uh, yeah we show up on you know on disaster scenes a lot of times. So every so so first of all, nothing really surprises me. Um, we've kind of seen because it's normal. Yeah, I mean, it's just it is sort of where we live. Um, yeah, I can't think of like a great answer to that. I, I'm uh, yeah, okay. you stump you, you stump me there. Okay. We'll see, we're going to be finishing this and then you're going to come back and go, I know, I, I know. I'm, I'm, let's but, circle back yeah. if it does. I'll let my team know you asked that question and they'll probably be like, oh my God, I can't believe you didn't say this or this or this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, send it back into us and maybe we can, we can share it. <laughs> All right, so last major big question that I have is what is something that you just haven't learned yet? Mm. So, I, well, I guess there's a different way to answer the question, which is something I learned is that I don't know much. So I learn that all the time. Um, I think, um, you know, I'm not like a dumb person, but I feel like that, like, especially around leadership, especially around, um, just like even even like my own team, right? I feel like I am constantly learning and having to develop myself and grow um, grow myself. So I am, um, you know, I am not. Even though I have seen a lot and I have a lot of experiences and uh, and I think give like great advice, I I am also. Uh, you know, humble enough to to realize like I do not know everything. I could be wrong. Um, I, I, you know, I, re I really try to share experience more than advice. I'm in a, I'm in a group called Entrepreneurs Organization. And so it's a group of entrepreneurs that we, well, we, we, you know, it's kind of like iron sharpens iron is kind of like one component of it, but we, a big part of it is we don't give each other advice. You share experience with each other. And, and the, and the whole idea of that is you never want to put yourself in a position that like, I know all, I know so much more than you know. Um, you know, going back to the hero assumption, Tara, uh, my assumption is that you are, are successful and you have a lot of experience yourself. So what I, what I can share with you is what I have seen and what I have experienced personally. And hopefully that benefits you in a way that maybe makes you think about your situation a little bit differently. Um, but I don't, feel like I have advice for you because you don't need advice. You, what, you know, you can, you got this, right? So it's really more, do I have any experience that could benefit you in this situation so that you can then go on and, and be the hero, right? You can handle it yourself. Um, so I feel like I am always learning. I am, you know, regularly, I have a 17 year old daughter so I'm regularly reminded about how dumb I am, uh, you know, by her. Um, but uh, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. I got those kids in that age group too. Um, but you, how you just answered that is you living out your number one approachability part of being open. Hmm. Just gave the example. Yeah. Thank you. Welcome. So thank you for, for sharing all of that. 
All right. So we have taken up almost an hour of your time, which is awesome. But we also have um, a few quick questions to ask yeah. you and don't think about them. Um, but in the past year, what has been a revelation to you about yourself? Um, well, I, I always kind of known I'm an extrovert and like, like being around people, but, uh, and so that's sort of, I've always thought of myself as, you know, that's, that's what I need. I've, it's been a weird, but I have enjoyed some of the alone time in COVID and just being able to sort of sit with myself and, uh, um, I've, I've done a lot more reading. I've done a lot more. I, there, there's, there's just some sort of self-care type things that I don't do when I'm flying all over the country and, and sort of doing my normal life that, uh, that I've, I've really, you know, enjoyed during COVID. So I, I guess that that's probably the most surprising thing. Oh, it's so nice to have that little bit of reset and happiness of just, man, all right, I'm going to hang out with my kids or yeah. watch a movie that I've, normally wouldn't watch or yeah all right what mantra do you use for yourself and that you like to share with others um well this is sort of a cheat but i would say you know stay approachable i mean i do i do tell people to do that like i you know i uh so i think that's that's probably my my mantra oh it's good pr and i do have to tell myself that by the way right like i think oh it's important God. for people to understand you know some uh, you teach what you need the most so this you know i'm not like some you know crazy like uber mr approachable uh person like that like there's a lot of what i teach and a lot of what i write about that is i don't know therapy might be the wrong way to put it but it's just like these these are things i have to remind myself to do as much as I'm reminding, you know, anybody else. So, um, yeah, I, got, I, I mean, I have, to, I have to repeat, stay approachable to me too. Well, you're the person who's telling these stories. And so people think, oh, you're the guru and you know, all of mm -hmm. these things. And it's like, yeah, nope. Got to nope. step back sometimes. Yep. All right. Copying from Brene Brown, her podcast, she asks, um, what do most people get wrong about you? What do most people get wrong? You know, I listen to the whole back catalog and I know you ask this question every time and, uh, but I did not prepare an answer for this. So let me, uh, let me, let me see what I have off the top of my head. What do most people get wrong? Um, I'm, I don't know that I have a good answer to this one. I'm, I think I'm kind of an open book. So like, I, I like to make fun of myself. I do like to laugh. I like to, you know, so I guess maybe, um, maybe one thing, this might like, I think Shaw might've said this too, but like, uh, I, like, because I joke around all the time, I mean, I am also pretty serious at times, but I think I think probably because I joke around and goof around quite a bit, the people might think that I don't take things as seriously as I do. Um, so that's, I think, I think that might be true. That, I think that might actually be like a direct quote of what Shaw said, which might be like, why, you know, we, we, 
I haven't seen him in a long time. It was great to listen to him, but I need to go see him in uh, three dimensions. But that, I, but that, I think that is right. Isn't that fun to listen to these? Well, I think it's fun and and say, oh, I know that person, and I'm listening to them, and mm -hmm. oh, I'm learning something new. I've just had I I re-listened to you know all of these because we're also editing them too. But it's like, oh, I forgot they said that, and. It's mm -hmm. just, oh, I've connected with them, but you hadn't, you just listened to him. <laughs> so I Yeah, that. I've loved, I've loved listening to him. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's a bunch of friends. So it's like, it's, it's cool. And, uh, or people I should be friends with, like, you know, it's, it, it's, it's fun. I love what you guys are doing. It's, it's really great. Thanks. All right. What recent TV show have you been obsessed with? Okay, this this one also came up, but it's but uh, Ted Lasso. I am like such a huge fan, and uh, and and the leadership lessons in, in Ted Lasso. Oh. Like I I literally could, yeah. Uh, you know, there are so many approachability lessons in that, uh, you know, in, in in that show. But it's uh, it is fantastic. It's written great. It's uh, uh, it's uplifting. It's optimistic. It's um, it's it's really wonderful. Okay, I'm I'm going to go off of the not on our normal questions, but did you like the beard episode when he goes on his little trip? Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and when he was when he was led tasso, is that the? Uh, yeah. That that was and yeah. That was, was that was awesome. Bit, yeah. So that one that yeah. That, you know, like I told you earlier, that exercise where we have people go over the top nice. So that's an exit. So the, the way that exercise starts is we have people role play over the top bad. And so that would be where you turn into lead tasso. <laughs> yeah. All right. So what book or podcast has had a profound effect on you and how it changed you? Um, okay. So I'm a huge listener of the Tim Ferriss podcast. I love uh, I love Tim Ferriss. I've, I've just listened to a couple. In fact, one of the ones I'm listening to. So the one I'm listening to today is Tim Ferriss for like three hours because his stuff is like long form for three hours talking about how he built his podcast. You both would love this podcast. Oh and it is all about sort of how he grew it. And, and it's too, like super nerdy about what tech he uses and which, which by the way, is like super limited. Um, he's got just like a lot of great tips on that so uh, i love tim ferris um I, I love against the rules so that's michael lewis his podcast is great um revisionist history anything malcolm gladwell does is awesome another one i think all those have been recommended but tyler cowan um so he's an economist and just just a unbelievable mental giant um but he does a, a podcast called conversations with tyler and that it won't be everybody's cup of tea, but that guy, he is just, he is such a great interviewer. And um, he does a segment you guys ought to try called underrated, overrated, but basically oh. he just like throws out different things and you go, you know, is that, do you think that's underrated or overrated? Um, but, but anyway, that like those, those are, those are my favorite. I play chess. So I listen to a chess podcast. Um, but anyway, those are, those are my favorites are all great things all right so rob what would be your question to ask phil of what's overrated underrated putting you on the spot well, yeah he, he brought up chess and immediately made me think of queen's gambit and i was wondering what he thought of that uh, show. so yeah. i'm gonna have to say appropriately rated 
So that one <laughs> got like wildly great reviews, absolutely wow. deserved them. Um, I loved that show. It was just everything about it. They, the whole period, the way that they did that, uh, the story was, was terrific. The acting was amazing. Um, the chess in it. So, you know, as a, yeah. as a chess nerd, the, uh, it, it, like they took so much care into making the chess like great. So, so if you actually played out the, they were playing famous games, they, they would, they, they were moving the chess pieces the way that you would have if you were a professional chess player, they took so much care on the chess in that that wouldn't be obvious to like most people, but like the, even the, the chess nerds were just huge fans because of all the care that they took with the chess. So all that to say, I think it's appropriately rated because I think you've got like, I mean, how, how many, what, you know, Emmys did it get? And like, I mean, it, it was, it's, yeah. it's had a lot of pub, but uh, it was great. Good. Okay, Rob, I'm glad you asked that. And Phil, I'm glad you answered how that, because now that gives me a different perspective as, as well. I'm not, I don't play chess. I don't know how that works. Oh, they, like, they really did. I mean, they, uh, Kasparov, former world champion, advised them on the chess. Uh, Pandolfini, who was the, if you remember searching for Bobby Fischer, that was, that, that was Josh Waitzkin's coach, but he advised on the chess. So they, I mean, they, they had this all-star team that was just helping them make the chess perfect. It was, it was wow. very good. All right. Well, wrapping up, how can people connect with you? Um, easiest way is uh, just our websites. So one, the approachableleadership.com is one of them, just all one word, approachableleadership.com. Um, and then LRI, so that stands for Labor Relations Institute, LRIonline.com is the other way to get to me and my emails on there and phone number and Etc. But th those are the two best ways to reach me. I'm on LinkedIn and um, Twitter and all that stuff. But those are those are the best ways to reach me. So great, and I've learned a ton of stuff from you. Even though I feel like we just barely touched no it. So this always goes by so quickly. So no. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. This is a it's an honor and a pleasure to get to to be on here. I really, uh, really appreciate it. And thanks for, thanks for inviting me. Our pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Bye, Phil. Bye, Rob. Bye. Yeah, bye, everyone. <laughs>